0: Well, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning for our last session, so you can begin to find that in your Bible. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to thank Pastor Stephen and all of the men's leadership team. You guys have done so much. Thank you. It's been a great weekend, and uh, the planning and the way you guys have served us has just been exceptional, so thank you. Well, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be looking just at the beginning. I want to read the first two verses. We're going to be covering more, but let's start in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ask yourself, what's it there for? And it's there to point us back to what he's already been talking about. So the writer of Hebrews, uh, there's some debate, but I think the Apostle Paul is the writer. So I'm going to be referring to Paul as the one who wrote this all throughout uh, this message. But uh, the the writer is pointing us back to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you've ever read Hebrews 11, you know it's the great uh, faith passage. It defines what faith is for us right there at the beginning. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and then he goes on and he lists this whole hall of faith, these heroes of the past. And so when Paul is talking here about this great cloud of witnesses, what he's saying is um, he's pointing back to these these heroes of the faith. And when he says they're witnesses, he's not saying they're spectators. Sometimes we, we get the picture of, well, we're in a stadium, we're down there on the track, we're running around, these are the people up in the stands of heaven, they're watching us and they're cheering us on. But the Greek word that is used there is the word that we get our English word martyr from. Uh, It speaks of those who uh, are willing to even give their life, those who have been faithful to the point of death even. So uh, they're not just witnessing what we're doing, better what they're doing is witnessing to us of who God is and what God has done for us. These These are the ones who are telling us to look at who Jesus is. And not only what he has done, uh, but what he can continue to do in and through our lives. You know, there may be times you find yourselves struggling in life. And it's great to always go back to the scriptures and look at some of these heroes of the past. People who remind us. You know, if you're struggling at home, if you've got difficulties with family, uh, read the story of Joseph. I mean... Uh, His brothers threw him in a well, they sold him, you know, into slavery, they did all kinds of things, so, you know, look at Joseph's life, look at how he handled it, if you think work is too much, if it's overwhelming, uh, read Moses, Uh, you know, I read about this guy leading millions through the wilderness, and these complaining, whining people, and, and, you know, (laughs) there's one point where he strikes the rock, and and God is, is perfect, so I know what he did was right, but I'm thinking if I had been the guy leading them through the wilderness and I lost my temper and struck a rock at what point, you know, would that keep me from getting in the promised land? So when work seems overwhelming, uh, read the past, read these these heroes like Moses and others and see. Now, as God is talking about the work that he's done in the past in lives, he's also talking to us today about working on our own lives. And I want to make sure we understand something very clearly Uh, As I'm talking about us being at work, I'm not talking about us working our way home to heaven. The Bible is clear that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. We saw in the passage out of Ephesians yesterday, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one should boast. So when we're talking about being saved here, as I'm talking in a moment about us working men. I'm not talking about us trying to work our way to heaven. In fact, what what Paul tells us here is he says, fix your eyes on Christ. You know, the theme of our weekend has been lifting our heads. Uh, And what it is literally telling us to do is lift our eyes up. Look to the cross. It's a picture back in Numbers where when Moses was leading the people through, you'll remember that there were serpents at one point that bit people, poisonous serpents, and they were dying And and what God instructed Moses to do was to fashion this bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and he said, lift it up. And anybody who had been bitten by these poisonous snakes were told to exercise faith. You have to look up at it. You have to believe in God's healing provision that is coming through this, and through that they were saved. And this is the picture here of what Christ did. Christ is the one who was lifted up on a cross, He became the provision, the payment for our sins, the perfect and permanent sacrifice that washed away uh, our sins. And what Paul is telling us here is we need to fix our eyes on Christ. We need to have that faith. We need to look up at him. We need to uh, appropriate his payment in our place. And this is how we are saved. So I want to make sure we, we understand that. As I tell us here that as God is at work in our lives, he calls us to be at work as well. Because what he says in verse 2 is, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This word uh, lay aside, it's actually a compound word. It's a, it's a Greek word made up of two words. And the, the root word here is uh, titithimi. And tithymy means where you take something that you have. So, you know, think of an article of clothing. And he says what you're to do is to take it off. And you're to lay it aside. So as he's talking about sin, he's talking about this stuff in our life that doesn't belong. And he says, I want you, uh, as you read through the Bible, you see where it's constantly telling us, put on Christ, put off the old ways, put aside these things. And this is what Paul is saying when he says, let us lay aside our sin, he's saying, take it off. This stuff that doesn't belong in our lives, brothers, he says, lay it aside. Now, the problem with just laying something aside is it's, it's, it's real easy to pick it up and put it back on again, right? And so this is where this word is a compound word. The f- prefix is "apo," And what "apo" means is "away." way. So what he's telling us is not only take off this stuff that doesn't belong in our life and lay it aside, but he says, push it away. In fact, what he says is, get it out of your reach. He says, lay it aside. Get it away from you. Don't have it right there within easy reach where, where you're going to pick it back up, those addictions, those habits, those wrong things. So he gives us this picture here of getting this stuff out of our life getting it as far away as we can. And it's, it's a deliberate decision that has to take place. We make a change in both our attitude and our behavior. And removing these things, it doesn't happen accidentally. We have to decide to do it. It's, it's an act. You have to take it off. You have to get rid of it. I'm not sure what just happened there. Uh, but you need to, you need to get this stuff out of your life. Now, the picture... That he uses here, uh, another thing that he says here in Hebrews 12, 1, is he refers to these incorrect attitudes as weights. And we talked about kind of this weight earlier in some of the sessions. And, and the Greek word here is agkos, is og, And it's, it means literally a burden or something that is so heavy and cumbersome that it impedes you. And, and Paul is giving us a picture here of a runner in a race he's giving us this image for us to picture of this athlete who is running and if you've ever watched an athlete train they will often you know have weights you ever seen people out in the neighborhood walking with weights or they have those little things around their arms or ankles maybe you know runners will have those wind socks that they're running behind that kind of drags on them and things when the actual competition comes, do you see them wearing all those weights and wearing the wind socks and all those things? No. They literally, they lay that stuff aside, right? They, they, they get it off. In fact, what they do is they, they strip down for the purpose of being at their absolute best and able to run. And so this picture of an athlete was that they were laying aside the things that were encumbering them. And a a high level athlete literally would drop weight, right? They didn't want all this extra weight. And so they would be laying that aside and that took discipline. They had to diet, they had to exercise. And then if you remember in the first century, uh, athletes actually often competed naked. I mean, we don't see that today, right? We see people wearing just as little as they can. Uh, But in the first century, they would run naked. Because they were literally saying, I am laying aside every little ounce, every little thing that could encumber me as, as I'm doing it. And this is the picture that Paul is saying to us. He says we need to strip off everything that doesn't apply uh, in our life. I don't know if any of you saw the um, heavyweight fight between Tyson Fury and Detente, uh, uh, Detente Wilder. Did anybody see that fight? Okay, a couple of you. I didn't actually see the fight. I you know, kind of caught the uh, re- review of what had happened and things. But this was a, a heavyweight, the WBC heavyweight fight between Fury and Wilder. And Wilder was an undefeated heavyweight champion. Twelve years, he had never had a defeat. And uh, Tyson Fury had never been defeated either. So this was like the Battle of the Titans, And these guys, as they got together, uh, people said that that Wilder looked really fatigued as the fight began. And in a post-fight interview, after Wilder lost the fight, uh, this undefeated champion lost, and this is what he said in the post-fight interview. He said of his opponent, he didn't hurt me at all. Uh, The simple fact is my uniform was too heavy for me. He said, I didn't have no legs from the beginning of the fight. And in the third rounds, my, my legs were just shot all the way through. Now, I've got a picture of, uh, of Wilder. If you look up here, this is when he came out. I don't know. Is the picture working? You guys don't have it? You didn't know? Okay. We, we've got a picture of it. And if we don't, I'll just describe it. So as he was coming out pre-fight, there it is, okay. <laughs> So, this this is Wilder here in the middle in this costume. So, so when he says my costume was too heavy, he's not talking about his boxing trunks, right? He he came out in his big theatrics. He had this show. Uh, that that costume he's wearing cost forty thousand dollars. Okay. Now that costume also weighed forty five pounds. Forty five pounds. So this guy's parading around before the fight. He's going around. So when he says, my costume was too heavy, my legs were shot, what he's saying is, I wore myself out before the fight even began. And because of that, this is what happened. Next picture. (laughs) All right. So this fight went seven rounds, and he got knocked down several times. And finally, his trainer threw the towel in in the seventh round because this guy was getting hurt, and he didn't want him to get permanently hurt. So this is the result of what happened when he didn't do what we're talking about. He didn't lay aside every encumbrance. He didn't get rid of the weight that was needed. Now, whether that was just an excuse for getting beat or whether it was real, we know uh, what happened is he didn't do what we're being told about today. Thank you. And so this is the picture of the ancient athletes. They, They were to be unweighted. Uh, and as I said, it didn't happen by accident. It was a, a decision where they it demanded your attention, your decision, your devotion. As you trained, as you lost the fat, as you, as you got in, in fighting shape and the ability. And this is what the Holy Spirit is urging us to do here. And so he says, take a good look at our lives. And then he says, remove everything that doesn't belong in your life, brothers. And so he keeps going in verse 3 of Hebrews 12. And he says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. It says, hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have not, and he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands. That are weak, the knees that are feeble, and make straight the path for, for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Who sold his own birthright for a single meal? For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And so here we're told that Jesus is the author, uh, which literally means the originator, and he's the perfecter, a word that means the finisher of our faith. And what we're being told here is that that Jesus suffered more than all of those. Remember, Paul's talking to those in the first century, those who were facing even death. And what he says is, you guys have not yet shed blood. None of you have yet been martyred. You're in this battle. You're struggling. You're enduring for the faith. But he says, look at what what Christ did for us at the cross. He suffered to the point of death. He shed his blood. He gave his life to give you and me the gift of eternal life. And he's, he's telling the, the readers here of Hebrew to look to Christ. Remember he said, look at this cloud of witnesses, the heroes of the faith of the past. And now he says, look at the perfect and ultimate example, the one we are to, to follow, which is Jesus Christ. Now when he talks about discipline here, Uh, He's moving from the training of an athlete who disciplines his body. Paul, in another passage, talks about how he buffets, literally boxes his body to beat it into submission. But here it's a different word. Uh, The discipline here is not speaking of the training of an athlete. Rather, it's speaking of the training of a child. The word literally means child training through instruction and discipline. So he's now switching pictures of us from an athlete to that of a child being uh, brought up and, and taught by a father. And, and what he tells us here is the Christian life, again, the people in that day understood because Greek youth were required to work out in a gymnasium as they were children in order to prepare for adulthood. The, the training of the body and the physical uh, was very important to the, the Greek and Roman society. And so it's speaking of this, this picture and what he's then moving to is from the discipline of a child to the chastening that happens where God is at work in disciplining us. And what it's telling us is that it's, it's this refining process. Have you ever seen how metal is refined? You know, it's put in, in a fire and the, and the dross is burned away. The fire is heated, it's hot, it's, it's burning stuff up, but then something comes out pure. It's how you get purified gold. It's why 24 karat has been in the fire longer and is purer than 12 karat, or this electroplated bogus jewelry that turns you green, right, that, that you maybe had when you were a youth. And so he's saying the real good stuff comes through a really hard refining process. It's the same thing with metal. Metal is tempered, it's put in the fire, it's plunged into the water, and there's this back-and-forth process to harden the steel. And so these are the images that Paul is talking to us here. And it's easy when we're dealing with trials in in life to think that maybe it means that that God doesn't love us. But it's, in fact, the opposite. God is, is proving his love for us by not just throwing us aside... But by instead putting us through this refining process. And so instead of trying to escape the difficulties of life, what he's telling us here is we should be exercised by them so we can grow. If you look earlier in chapter five of Hebrews, Paul tells us this in verses eleven through fourteen. He says in Hebrews uh, five, eleven through fourteen, concerning him, this is Christ, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for somebody to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, this word that we read, solid food, it's the Greek word steros. Have you ever heard of steroids? This is where we get it. This word means uh, firm and hard, solid or strong. And he again gives us this picture of a baby versus this, this you know, muscle-bound man. Imagine last night as if you guys were lining up for your, your steak. Uh, instead of singing the steak song, Right? We had been singing milk, right? And, and instead of getting a, a you know, piece of meat as big as your head, uh, we had been handing out bottles of milk and said, Here you go, guys. You know, enjoy your dinner. Thanks a lot. Bro. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, I want a refund for the retreat, right? Uh, but that's the picture here. Paul says, You guys should be getting your PhD, and instead, you're back in your ABCs. He says, You guys are, are babies. You should be teachers by now, but instead of of, of needing the milk, I mean the meat, you want this milk. You're like a a whining baby who's crying for your bottle. And, And he gives this picture again. Remember, he's been talking about this discipline of an athlete, this exercise, this eating solid food. And that's how we mature and grow. And he says it's the same way, men, that we grow as believers. We fight the fight. We discipline our bodies. We lay aside. We throw away, get the stuff out of our life that we don't need in order to be able to grow. And, and I know it can be hard when we're suffering. And we may even wonder, where is God and does he love us? Which is why Paul tells us here in Hebrews twelve five. as you look at Hebrews twelve five, he says, Let me exhort you. And that word exhort literally means encourage. What Paul says is, guys, let me encourage you. He's not just beating up on them, saying, suck it up, man up, you know, go through life. He's saying, let me, let me explain what's happening, guys, because God loves you, and he's disciplining you, and he's growing you. He says, let me encourage you. This, is, this doesn't say God's forgotten you or he hates you. In fact, it means the exact opposite. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you so much he wants to grow you. And what he quotes from there is Proverbs three eleven through 12. When he says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. That's a quotation from Proverbs three eleven through 12. He says, Chastening is the evidence of the father's love. You know, if I were at a, a park and I watched my son, Zachary, get in a fight with another kid... As a father, I would go running over there, right? And I would separate the boys. And I, and I, would, I would take my son, and I'd take him aside, and I'd say, Zach, what were you doing? And, and depending upon what had happened, there would be a consequence, right? I might discipline. I might do other things. And Zach may be standing there going, oh, this isn't fair, Dad. The other boy was involved too. Why aren't you doing anything with him, right? And if Zachary said that to me, I'd say, son... I love you. I have a relationship with you. I don't know that other kid. I'm going to stop the bad behavior. I'm going to intervene. But as a father, I really have no uh, role in disciplining this child. The one that I love, the one who has a relationship with me, is the one I'm going to discipline. And that's what God does with us, men, as his sons. He says, I have a relationship with you. I care about you. I want you to be the best man you can be. I want to see you grow and so he's going to come in, he's going to bring these hard things, and at times we may go, oh, I don't like this, it's not fair, Daddy. And what he says, it's because I am your Daddy, it's because I love you. You know, Satan and society want us to believe the difficulties of our life are, are proof God doesn't love us, but it's the opposite. As you look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 8, six times you see the word son, the relationship of a father to a child, We've been adopted into the family. John 1.12 tells us, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And God says, I love you, men. You're mine. I bought you. I paid for you. And because I love you, I'm going to be in your life. I'm going to be in your business. I'm going to be taking you through these hard, hard things. There was a Christian blacksmith in the 1800s. He had, a, he had a lot of affliction in his life, and he was a very vocal witness for Christ in this, in this community. And so people were saying, you know, hey, you talk about God and his love and all this, and, you know, if God loves you so much, why are all these things happening to you? And this blacksmith said to, to them, he said, listen, I don't know that I can account for these things according to your satisfaction, but I think I can to my own. He said, as a blacksmith, I will take a piece of iron And I put it into the fire until it's white hot. And then I put it on the anvil and I strike it a time or two to see if it's going to take a temper. And if I think it will, I plunge it into the water and I change the temper of the metal. And then I put it back into the fire again. And then I plunge it into the water. And he says, I go through this process several times. And he says, and then I put it on the anvil and I hammer it and I bend it and I rasp it and I file it and it makes some useful article which I can then put into a carriage that will last for 25 years. And he says, if, however, when I first strike it on the anvil, I think it won't take a temper, then I throw it into the scrap heap and I sell it for half a penny a pound. The blacksmith went on to say, I believe that my heavenly father has been testing me to see if I will take a temper. He's put me into the fire. He's put me into the water. He's hammered on me. He's rasped on me. He says, I've tried to bear it as patiently as I could. He said, my daily prayer has been, Lord, put me into the fire, if you will. Lord, put me into the water, if you think it will help me. Do anything you please, O Lord, but only for Christ's sake. Don't throw me into the scrap heap. Man, it can be hard. But I want you to know that God is making something precious in your life. He's growing you. He's developing you. He wants you to be useful for his kingdom. He wants you to see just how much you are loved through the refining process. If, if we were not precious, God wouldn't waste time with us. He could throw us on the scrap heap. And what Paul is telling us here is this process that God is taking us through is is this refining, this chastening. It's not pleasant, but he says the benefits are profitable. One of the benefits he mentions here is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Where instead of continuing to sin, the child strives to do what is right. And then we can avoid the consequences that come with our bad choices. He says, as you're running the Christian life, he says, look up, guys. Lift your eyes up to the cross. See what Christ endured for you. And instead of hanging your heads, instead of saying, life's just too hard, it's too much. I think God doesn't know me or care about me. He says, instead, recognize that all these things happening to you shows that God has his eyes on you. That God loves you and he's not done with you. He's developing and growing you. It's why he says pursue the goal of peace with others and the holiness before the Lord. And then he gives us a negative example in verse 16 of Esau. Uh, Esau sold his birthright. Now what a birthright was is if you were the firstborn son, you got a double inheritance from your father. Whatever, if there were two boys, uh, it wasn't divided 50-50. You got twice, and then the other one got one. If there were six kids, this one got twice, and then everybody got what was left divided. I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 25, because in Genesis 25:27 is where we find this account of Esau. Genesis' first book in the Bible, and it tells us this in Genesis 25:27 through 34. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac, this is the father, loved Esau because he had a taste for game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. So you've got the daddy's boy and the mama's boy, right? And it says, and when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. You remember Esau was this red, hairy, you know, burly kind of guy. And, but Jacob said, first, you know, slapped his hand. Don't get your hand in the stew yet. He says, first, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob and then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and he rose and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, as I read that story, it it reminded me of what it's like to go deer hunting. If you guys have ever gone deer hunting, you know, you get up before the crack of dawn, right? Right? You're up, you got to get out, you got to get to the stand, maybe you hike to where you're going, you you get up in there, it's still cold and dark, you're shivering, you're praying for the sun to come up. Uh, And and as you're there, maybe you sit in your stand the whole morning and nothing happens. Then you have to get down out of the stand, you hike your way back to camp, and as you're coming into camp, you always kind of are looking ahead, right? Because you're there with a couple other buddies and you're looking to see if anybody's had a successful hunt. Is there another deer hanging, you know, already in camp? Uh, you start breathing deeply. You smell the fire. You know, you may be cold. You're hungry. And you're, you're, you're trying to catch a whiff of maybe some deer sausage cooking. Because, you know, when you go hunting, you bring game from the previous hunts. And so you know that with that smell of, of the deer sausage or something else in camp that there's going to be this invitation, Right? Hey, come on in, kick your boots off, sit down. Let's all, you know, tell stories. Let's all lie about our morning. Let's all talk about, you know, how our hunt was. But, but you know with the smell, there's going to be an invitation uh, to sit down and have, have some fellowship to, to tell this story. And as Esau is returning to camp, he's tired. He's hungry. He, he didn't see any game hanging in the camp, but he did catch a whiff. Of this stew cooking. There's an aroma of a waiting meal. And what Esau didn't know is the waiting meal was not an invitation to tell about his hunt. Rather it was a trap. It was a trap. Laid for the hunter. You know deer will give their life unknowingly for corn. Right? You put out corn on a feeder. You spread it around. and, And this deer will come along. And it will trade its life. For a meal. And here Esau is about to trade the blessing of his birthright for the passing pleasure of a bowl of stew. The birthright is valuable. Think of how much wealth it, it represented, a double portion. And you can give it up for a single bowl of stew. I want you to think for a moment about your own life, and I want you to ask yourself, does this apply to you? I want you to think about something valuable in your own life this morning, men your family, your wife that you spent all that time, if you're married, courting and trying to get to marry you, your kids, all you've invested in them, who they are, your job, the years of study as you prepared as a journeyman and worked your way up in a trade to get licensed or to all those you know, late-night papers you wrote, all the things you went through in school to get your job, your reputation, stuff you've spent your whole life building. You know, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and just an instant to lose it. I want you to think about what you've invested in, something of great value. And then I want you to think about what you are willing to trade it in for. What are you willing to give up? Are you selling out your birthright for a bowl of stew, so to speak? You know Hebrews twelve sixteen tells us Esau was an immoral and godless man who sold his birthright for a single meal. And you may be sitting here saying, "Well, Roger, that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm, I'm I'm not that kind of guy." I hope that's not true, now and always. But let me tell you something, men. I know a lot of guys in ministry who sold out their birthright for a bowl of stew. Men who have lost their ministry. For some moment of passing pleasure, all those years in seminary, all the hard work, all the things that they went through, all the things their family went through, and they gave it up like that for a bowl of stew. The guy who led me to Christ had an affair on his wife, lost his marriage, lost his ministry. My pastor in college had an affair, multiple affairs actually lost his ministry, didn't lose his family, but lost everything. I used to sit on the front row of that church when I was in college at the University of Texas saying, I want to be just like that guy. That's my hero. That's the guy. There are three other guys I know, all of us, four men. We used to sit on the front row of of this church, Westlake Bible Church, that's now Austin Ridge in Austin. and, And we would look at this man, Sid, and we would say, we're going to be just like Sid. All four of us are pastors. And Sid, out of the ministry, because he sold his birthright for the passing pleasure of a bowl of stew. A momentary pleasure where he fell into temptation because he, he had a fleshly desire. I want you to think about the things that are taking us out in life. I mean, it's not just sex. We, you probably all know somebody who's, who's messed up their marriage, who's done all kinds of things over sex. But we do it for other things as well. It's a lust for power, for money, for prestige. You know, I know pastors who will compromise on doctrine in order to have a bigger church. That's a grab for power. I want to I have more people in the church. I want to have things I'm willing to compromise. I'm willing to sell out in order to have something that I don't have. What are you selling out, your families for work? Are you sacrificing your families in order to get the corner office, to get the next promotion, to get the next thing? Are you selling out the long-term blessing of your birthright, so to speak, for the passing pleasure of a momentary bowl of stew? You know, we've been given a birthright as believers. When we come to faith in Christ, we're called born-again believers, And while we can never lose our salvation, once we come to faith in Christ, we are saved for all eternity. The scriptures are very clear that once we are saved, we're always saved. But what it is also clear about is we can lose our rewards. We can lose heavenly rewards. We we maybe have a hundred years on this planet, men, and we're going to have eternity with Christ. What are you trading in now for eternity? The rewards that we will have, are you you selling out the the long-term blessings for a short-term pleasure? As we look at Esau, he's a man's man. He was loved by his father. He's a skillful hunter, but the hunter here becomes the hunted. In Genesis 25, 29, Esau walks right into Jacob's camp. You see, Esau knew how to set traps in the field, right? He's a skillful hunter. He knows how to set up a deer feeder. He knows how to look for the secret trails. He knows how to make everything just right in order to catch uh, the prey. But Esau is the one who falls prey because his brother also knew him. He knew he was a rash man. He knew uh, who he was. He knew he had these appetites. You know, it's ironic that Esau, if you've ever been out in the field, you know you're, you're careful when you're out there, right? Right? Not only gun safety, but you're looking for rattlesnakes. You're careful of, you know, what tree you're going to put your stand in. Make sure it's not rotted, you know, so something's going to fall on you. You're, you're very aware of all the dangers out in the field. But what happens when you get back home or to your camp? You know, that's where so many guys get hurt. They get careless once they walk into camp, and they're like, well, I'm safe here. How many of us are falling into safety of our own homes You know, when we're out in the world, we're real careful, right? But we get home, and then what do we do? We log into the Internet, and we start surfing it, and we go to that pornographic site. Or we're at work, around our coworkers. How many affairs happen in the offices now? It happens in churches. There are affairs that happen with people who go to church together. This may surprise you, but as a pastor, I've been propositioned numerous times by women in the churches that I pastor. And it's very easy to be in places where you think I'm safe. You're like, well, I'm not over at the seedy side of town in the massage parlor or, and you know, doing all the things in the old days. You know, There are enough men in the room here that remember if you wanted to look at pornography, in the old days you had to drive to the wrong side of town, go into some adult bookstore or get the thing that had the brown wrapper in the mail and, and, and look at it that way. Now we just swipe a phone and click and it's there. How many of us are letting our guards down and falling into the very traps that we're talking about here today. You know, I went fishing yesterday. Uh, I didn't catch anything. I think all the fish had had the steak as well. They were full. Now, Ryan, you know, was slaying the perch. He got, he got a lot of perch. But, you know, the way that a fish, uh, that you get a fish to strike is one of two ways. Either they're hungry or you agitate them enough that they'll strike, Right? And it's the same thing that happens with us. We are most susceptible to sin when we're hungry or agitated, right? I mean, after the steak dinner last night, if you were offered something else to eat, how many of you were like, I can't have another bite, please get away from me, right? It's when we're hungry that we're most susceptible. So you need to know that about yourselves. You need to know when you're in the most danger and protect yourself. It's when you're agitated, right? You're mad, you're frustrated, and you find yourself easy to, to bait into something. Esau was tired. He was hungry. He returned from a feudal hunt. He came home to where his brother Jacob, the master deceiver, was waiting. Remember, Jacob's name means that. He's a deceiver. He was dangling the lure in front of his brother. And where he thought he was going to get a meal, as he bit into it, he found there was a hook. Just like a fish thinking it's going to get a meal suddenly becomes a meal on your plate. As you read the passage, look at what it says about Esau and how he traded his blessing. It says, he ate, drank, rose, and went his way. Thus he despised his birthright. Did you see how fast it happened? He ate, drank, rose, and went his way. The pleasure was short-lived, but the consequences were long-term. It's the same with the story of King David. You remember King David and Bathsheba? David was the the king, the beloved of God. He's described as a man who is after God's own heart. And we're told that there was a time that he was in his house. He looked out over the balcony. He saw into uh, the courtyard where Bathsheba was taking a bath. Now, what you may not know about Bathsheba, the reason that Bathsheba's house was right by David's is because her husband, Uriah, was one of David's mighty men. He was a best friend of King David. He was a bodyguard of David. His house was right by David's because he was the secret service. He was the protection for the king. And Uriah is off doing what David should have been doing. He's, ha- he's out in the field at battle in David's home. And David it looks over, and as you look at the, what happened with his sin with Bathsheba, it says David saw he sent. Remember, he, he said, who's that beautiful Bring her here? He he saw, he sent, he took, he lay, and then she left. Just like Esau, right? Boom, boom, boom. He saw, he sent, he took, he lay, she left. Men, when are we going to wake up? When are we going to realize that the short-term passing pleasures of the sins that we're falling into are just not worth it? Compare it to the long-term blessings you are giving up. In order to satisfy a fleshly desire, whether it's sex or status or anything else, we despise our birthright. Don't sell your spiritual blessings for this momentary passing pleasure. Jacob knew about Esau. He knew he was rash. He knew he would come back hungry and famished, and he was waiting when he returned. And friends, just like Jacob, Satan knows the same thing about you and me. Satan is a skillful hunter. Remember, he has thousands and thousands of years of practice, okay? He knows how to set traps. He knows the secret trails we're running, just like a skilled hunter goes out and scouts an area, figures out where the deer are bedding down, where the deer are running, and what they're doing, and you set up and you prepare. Satan is called in the scriptures a roaring lion who is seeking someone to devour, and he's waiting for us. I said if you've ever been deer hunting, you know what it's like to come back to camp empty-handed. You also know that it's often not because you didn't see a deer. Many times you'll see lots of deer, right? You're up in the stand, and there's the doe playing around. There's the young bucks. There's other. And, but you're waiting, aren't you? You're waiting for that trophy. And you're looking at the deer. The first doe come in and you get excited because you know the bucks are going to be following. They're smart enough. They hang out in the woods waiting for, you know, is that doe going to be safe? And then the younger, inexperienced bucks come in and you're kind of waiting. You even, you know, get your rifle up. You start scoping them. You've got them in your crosshairs. You're counting counting their points. I, I think it's eight. looks like it's 16, right? You're... <laughs> It's still a little dark. I can't see. So you're, you know, you're trying to wish that thing to grow. It's amazing how much, how much shrinkage happens. You shoot one, you walk up on it and you're like, oh gosh, what happened to my buck? Right? Friends, that's Satan. He's got us in his crosshairs. He's watching us. And sometimes he doesn't flick the trigger because he says, I'm going to let you get to be a little bigger. You're not quite trophy enough for me to take. And he waits to let us get a little higher up in the company, to have a little bigger reputation, to have a bigger impact when we have our fall. And right now, some of you think you're safe. You're running those back trails of sin. You say, hey, nobody knows. I'm smart about wiping the history on the Internet. I don't go to places where anybody knows me. You know, nobody knows what I'm doing. Friend Satan knows. And he's laid a trap and he's waiting for you. And you're in his crosshairs right now. And he may be waiting just for you to get a little bit bigger, a little bit more of a trophy before he takes you. The Bible tells us to he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. If you guys think it can happen to anybody but you, you're wrong. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. And God calls on us to set aside, to lay aside our sin, to get out of there, to flee from it, to run from the wrong things and to return to God. You may be sitting here saying, Roger, it's too late. I'm one of those guys who's already fallen. He's already taken me. He's already ruined me. I, my reputation is shot." I've lost my family. I've lost this or that. Do you remember King David? King David sinned, committed adultery with Bathsheba, tried to cover up his sin. He invited Uriah back from the field. He got Uriah drunk. Well, first he tells him, hey, give me a report of the battle. Go home, enjoy your wife. Uriah goes and sleeps in the doorway of his home. Report comes back to the king. Hey, he didn't go in. Everybody's going to know when Bathsheba's pregnant, the guy didn't go in. That's how much integrity Uriah had. So you know what David does? He brings him in, he feasts him, he gets him drunk, says, well, now he's going to go home, go in, be with his wife. Still even drunk, he sleeps in the doorway of his house. Finally, David says, I got to do something to cover my sin. He sends back the plans in the hands of Uriah, it says, put Uriah at the front of the battle, up at the wall, then withdraw and let him get killed. That man had so much integrity. Da- David sends his literal death warrant in his hand, knowing that Uriah wouldn't peek at what's going on. Uriah gets killed. David's guilty of murder. Then he marries Bathsheba, right? They get married. Oh, look at that premature baby. It's, you know, a fully grown boy. David tried to cover up his sin over and over, and it got worse and worse, adding murder to adultery. And men, you may be thinking, i got to cover my sin. i got to do these things. When was David forgiven? When he confessed his sin, when Nathan, the prophet, showed up, tells his story. David, in his righteous indignation, says, oh, this guy who stole the one sheep from the guy who had a flock, this guy needs to be punished. And Nathan says, you're the man. And David, to his credit, confessed his sin. And he was restored. And men, whatever it is you've done today, if you think God's thrown you on the scrap heap, he can't use you anymore, that's not true. Because 1 John 1.9 says, if if you confess your sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whatever it is you have done there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness at the cross. And it may be there's somebody here this morning who's never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've been trying to do it on your own. You've been trying to work your way to God, thinking you can be good enough and earn your way to God. We heard yesterday, but God, right? Read Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I invite you to accept his gift of grace to you. To say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. And as sinners, we owe a penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, when we receive his death in our place, when we look to the cross, recognizing he was lifted up, he gave his life in order to lift our sins away from us, to remove them as far as the east is from the west. He says, you are forgiven. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Then he invites you today, if you have never become a son of God to accept his gift of grace to you. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And he invites you this morning to simply say to him, God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. And because I'm a sinner, I recognize I'm separated from you. I owe a penalty of death. And I believe, Jesus, you came and took my place. You went to the cross. You died for me. And today I accept your gift of grace in my place. And God washes our sins away. He wipes the account out. He writes paid in full on the account, as Jesus said in John 19.30, paid in full. That's what it means when it says it is finished. It's the Greek word teleste, which literally means paid in full. What was paid in full? The penalty of death for our sins.